The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Well, good morning, church. It's great to see you. Second Peter chapter 1 in your Bible. Let me ask you to open it to that place. Uh, said to you last week, we want to begin this morning uh, walking through Second Peter, get Peter together. So if you don't have a Bible, I hope you'll reach into the rack and grab one in front of you. Or maybe there's someone sitting close to you that has a copy that uh, would be willing to let you look on. But uh, I want to encourage you to uh, join me as we walk through this book together. I, I I don't get as many chances now that I'm, I'm back in theological education to preach through books. I preach every Sunday, but just not as many occasions like this to be able to preach through a book, uh, which is what I did uh, as a pastor, is what your pastor does. And so I'm so excited about this um, and so excited I need to contain myself a little bit more um, First and second service know that I got to get my arms around as I'm just I'm, I'm having fun uh, too much fun probably but uh, um, I just uh, I'm looking forward to the journey and uh, looking forward to us sharing together what God uh, would uh, would say to us through His words. Let me read Second uh, Peter chapter one verses one through four. Obviously, this is an introductory uh, message. Uh, this morning because we need to deal with some of the issues that are in the background, but also get into what we're going to be looking at as we journey uh, together. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ... The language here, he's putting those two together. He's not saying a God and then a Savior, Jesus Christ. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's going to really say that twice here in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Once again, instruction here in the context is not the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus our Lord, but the knowledge of God and Jesus putting them together. The great pastor W.A. Criswell said, God is the only God that there will ever be. Jesus is the only God that you will ever see. And the Holy Spirit is the only God that you will ever feel. Triune God. And here Peter speaks of two of the three persons of the Trinity together. Verse 3, his divine power. Whose divine power? Well, God in Christ, just been spoken of. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Any self-respecting sports fan knows the stories of how the legendary coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers began every season. He would get his players in the locker room or in the meeting room, 
stand up before them holding a football, take a moment to gaze across the squad and then hold the football out and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Now you remember he's talking to seasoned players, all pros, guys that had been there before. Then Lombardi would march them out of the locker room. He would take them out on the field. He would show them the sidelines and then he would show them the end zone line. And then he would explain to them how their purpose was to get the football across the goal line. Vince Lombardi knew something about the importance of reminding people about fundamentals. Even athletes who were well accustomed to the things that he was talking about. And no doubt that had something to do with him winning five NFL championships with the Green Bay Packers, including Super Bowls one and two. The Apostle Peter also knew something about the importance of reminding people about fundamentals. He writes this letter to people who were in the midst of an onslaught of false teaching, heretical teaching that was undermining their faith and causing many of them to stumble. And he comes to them in this letter, very simply holding out the gospel saying, folks, this is the gospel. Don't forget it. Don't forget and so we come to this book with an understanding that what we're talking about is a charge to remember the gospel. And I said to you last week, if you, if you don't think that's relevant in our day, you're not paying attention. The explosion of television, of radio, the internet, websites, social media, podcasts, blogs, and many other means of, of, uh, uh, of mass communication have made false teaching readily accessible to not only people in our culture, but people in our churches, to us. And sometimes we don't separate it out from all of the good that comes across some of those places. Just like sometimes in the church, we don't we don't separate out what's contrary to the gospel and those who are speaking contrary to the gospel. And so this is a word that is important for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Whether it's our, our, our misunderstanding of love, our affinity for intolerance, our affinity for tolerance in our, in, in our culture, or, or, or just our, our resistance to confrontation, it seems that oftentimes, whether it's in the family, in the home, or sometimes in churches, we receive this stuff with open arms simply because somebody's using the term Christian or simply because somebody is, is, is using the word gospel. They're, they're, they're saying things that, that are contrary to the gospel and, and, and many times we, we don't distinguish between truth and error. This was brought home to me several years ago when I was pastoring in Denver, Colorado. Our church had a television broadcast. It was on a one-week delay. And so our broadcast was early in the morning on Sunday morning. So it would have been last week's service. I remember coming to the worship service one day. One of our senior adult ladies met me at the door as I was coming in. She had a big smile on her face. And she said, she said, I listened to my two favorite preachers on TV this morning. And then she said, you and Joel Osteen. <laughs> and I know, I know that she was, she was wanting to encourage me and pay me a compliment, but I couldn't help thinking as I found my way to my seat to get ready for the service. And you think we're saying the same thing? No distinguishing, no discernment, no separation. 
And sometimes we can be sitting in a church for years and hearing the gospel preached rightly like you have and still many times with open arms receive stuff that is contrary to that. This is a needed word for us. And so I think when we come to these first few verses that introduce us to, 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 to what Peter is saying, that we, we, we find him uh, maybe specifically starting out by saying, don't forget, don't forget what God has provided, what he's provided for you to enable you to stand fast against false teaching, against the onslaught of that that seeks to undermine the gospel. And so, so that's what I want us to think about. Let me just show you just three major divisions, the three simple ways, uh, that things I want you to listen for this morning. We want to talk about the background. We need to jump into that a little bit and make sure we understand who's talking and who's being spoken to and when this was all done, all that kind of stuff. And then I want us to look at the blessing in verse 2, which was a very uh, common part of first century letters, but ones that were written by Christians, especially under the inspiration of the spirit in the canon of scripture had a distinctly Christian twist to it. And I want us to see that. And then in verses three and four, we'll talk about the big idea. So the background, the blessing, and the big idea. Let's talk about the background first. And we'll start with who wrote this. He's identified in verse one, Simeon Peter or Simon Peter. We know him as one of the apostles. He's famous for being the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He seemed to always be speaking before he thought, but nonetheless, he, his aggressiveness and assertiveness and, 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 and passion for the gospel and for Christ made him a leader among those 12 apostles that walked with the Lord Jesus. He calls himself a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, some have, have disputed the authorship of 1 Peter. There's really no reason for us to think that anyone other than the apostle Peter wrote it. The language here is very similar to 1 Peter. A lot of the vocabulary is identified in Peter's sermons and his uh, uh, speeches in the book of Acts and, and, and then his personal references all the way through that would have been really hard for somebody to just, to, you know, to, to just duplicate. So I think with confidence we come here knowing that we're talking about Peter, the apostle, who identifies himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. When did he write it? Uh, we don't know for sure, uh, but we can uh, uh, be relatively certain that it was probably somewhere 67, 68 AD, shortly before Peter's death, probably written from a Roman prison cell from which he would never be released. You see his reference in verse 14 of this chapter, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. I'm going to die soon, he says, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And as you read the urgency in his voice, in his words, in this letter, you see that uh, to be true. So no doubt he was writing shortly before uh, he was killed. Well, you think not just about the writer of the letter and when it was written, but the recipients. And here is where we really begin to personalize this thing. We, we don't know the specific congregation or group of people that Peter wrote to. What we can be sure about is that he was writing to a specific group of people, not just a letter that he intended to be dispersed and passed around at that. And one of the things that indicates to that is the intimacy with which he addresses them. Look at what he says here in verse one. Here's who I'm writing to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. What an incredible statement. 
he writes to these people and he says, I'm writing to people. And this is where we can identify as God speaks through the apostle Peter to that congregation. He speaks to us and, and, and we hear the address to those of us who have obtained a faith of equal standing as whose? As the apostles. He's just introduced himself and said, Simon Peter, I'm writing, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to those of you who have obtained a, a, a faith obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Equal standing with, with an apostle. Now, don't, don't think that this is saying that God has made you an apostle. He's put you in the office of the apostle. There were only 12 of those guys. Uh, uh, 12, one of the original obviously didn't make it. Jesus defaulted on his ministry, but he was replaced in the book of Acts by Matthias. When those guys died off, according to the qualification of the apostle, I, I think scripture teaches us the apostolic office ceased to exist. But that's not what Peter's saying. He's not saying you become an apostle. He says you've got a faith that is on equal standing with a guy that Jesus called that, that, that ate with him and slept with him and watched him do miracles and walked with him and lived with him and did life with him 24-7. Guy that was, that was entrusted with the gospel after Jesus left to carry it on. And here we are 2,000 years later because they did the job, because it worked, because they were faithful to do that. And here's one of those apostles that now writes to us and says, you've received a faith on equal standing with ours. I mean, you just, you just pick your Christian hero, living or dead, throughout church history. You say, when I think of Christianity and faithfulness, I think of Martin Luther, or I, 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 I think of John Calvin, or I think of Billy Graham, or you know, I, I think of, 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 of this person that, that is just an icon of, of spirituality. L listen to the word of the Lord. This is written to people who have received a faith on equal standing with all of theirs. There's nothing less about your faith if you're in Christ Jesus. There's nothing subpar. There's nothing, there's nothing that is second class in that. You have a faith on equal standing with the apostles, any other Christian hero that you could, you, you could think about. Now, let's lean into that a little bit. And, and, and let, me, let me talk just a moment about that equal standing. We, we need to be careful that we don't blow by Peter's designation of himself there in verse 1 because what he says there in identifying himself and then turns around and says, you're on in your faith or equal standing with me. We need to think about him. Look at what he says. He says he's an apostle. I've already said we're, we're not called the apostolic office, but you, you know what the word apostle means. It means to be sent, one sent, a messenger. And every believer in Jesus Christ since Jesus ascended back into heaven and since those apostles died off has been handed that same responsibility of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we find ourselves encouraged in the reality that we have a faith that is on equal standing with the apostles, let's make sure that we know what that level playing field looks like. It looks like people who are sent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're on the planet. We have been sent to advance his kingdom and share his gospel with every person we possibly can. But notice also, Peter says he is a servant. 
language of the New Testament, it's probably better translated bondservant or even slave. This is what Peter refers to himself out. Notice that he puts that word before apostle. Probably to clothe in humility his apostolic authority to help people understand what he's about to say. And that is, I'm writing to those of you that have attained a faith on equal standing with ours. And he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to hear me very clearly, okay? We live in a day, we all know of heightened racial tension. It's something that has hung around for a long time as part of our heritage in this country, in abuses that have taken place, in bigotry and hatred and racism. And it's still here, even as recently as yesterday, as our brother prayed about a moment ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, and one person being killed when a, a car drove into a crowd, 19 injured, two other state troopers lost their lives trying to help navigate all of that, all growing out of, out of a hatred for someone of a different color. Beloved, listen to me. This is something that the church of Jesus Christ needs to lead the way in saying no to. This is a, there, there is nothing, nobody had. I mean, you come to that conversation with political correctness, few, few, sooner or later it's gonna run out. If you, you just come, come to it with a tolerance issue, sooner or later that's, our depravity is gonna take over. We're the only ones that have something lasting to bring to that conversation and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing, nothing more contrary to the gospel than racism and prejudice and hatred and looking at someone else as being lesser than you because of their skin color or their ethnicity or whatever the case may be. We must lead the way in saying, no, it is sin. Anytime there is, there is a, a, a group that elevates itself in and, 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 and supremacy and, and even nationalism that is limited, qualified for their group only, this is sin, brothers and sisters, and we need to say no to it. But what I'm about to say next is going to be something that some of you are going to have to think through. Having said what I just said about the contrary nature to the gospel of racism and prejudice and all of that, we need to understand something. The rightness or wrongness of slavery is in direct relationship to the slave owner. Let me say it again and then I want to unpack it. The rightness or wrongness of slavery is something that's in direct relationship to the slave owner. You know why we oppose slavery? You know why we should oppose slavery and the racism and prejudice that's grown from it? Because it was born out of a feeling, a conviction that some were lesser, lesser human beings. They were lesser persons, didn't have the same rights, weren't on the same status equality. And that perception came from those who, 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 who represented that. But if you and I take that abuse and we say all slavery is wrong, then you got a problem when you come to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Because the apostle Peter comes and says, 
I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And you understand the distinction. You remember what I said? It's in direct relationship to the slave owner. When when, when the perspective and the conviction and, and the drive of the slave owner is the things that we've seen in this country that has given birth to prejudice and racism. This is sin, brothers and sisters. But let me give you another perspective. Here, the slave owner is one who, at the end of verse one, is making us righteous. Why? Because he left the glory of heaven one day and came to earth and became a man in order to identify with us. And he lived a life that we can't live for us. He came looking for us when we weren't looking for him. And then he took that perfect life that he lived and he went to the cross and he died there in your place and mine when you didn't ask for it and I didn't ask for it. He gave his life for us because of his love for us. He died for us. And he rose from the dead in order to give us back the life we were created to have. And then he's going to come down here and say he's given us his divine power so that, so that we can have true life and godliness in verse 3. And, 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 and he's going to say in verse 4, he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that one day we can be partakers of his divine nature. We can share his nature. This is the slave owner that is speaking in this passage of Scripture. And the apostle Paul says, apostle Peter says, I'm a slave to him. You see, you see the difference? That kind of love, that kind of motivation, that kind of passion merits us being bond slaves to the Lord Jesus. It compels us to godliness and righteousness and obedience and all of those things. Because the slave owner is the one who loves us from all of eternity and who died for us when we didn't deserve it. And Peter says what all of us must say, and that is, I'm a bondservant. And he writes, and he says, I'm writing to those of you that are on equal standing with us. We are on equal standing with the apostles and all of the great Christians of history with regard to the faith that we have. But being on equal standing, it compels us to the responsibility of being one's sent with the gospel of Christ and it compels us to be ones who live as slaves of Jesus Christ. How does it happen? Look at the end of verse one. Here's how this equal standing came about for us by the righteousness of our God and savior, Jesus Christ. There he says it. Here's how you got, here's why you can be on equal standing with regard to your faith as an apostle is because the same righteousness that it took to make the apostle righteous is the same righteousness that it took to make you righteous. When Jesus went to the cross and he took that perfect sacrifice to the cross on your behalf, on your stead and in your stead and mine, and he became sin for us and he incurred the wrath of the holy God against sin. He did what was necessary to make people righteous, regardless of whether it's an apostle or a ditch digger or a housewife or an engineer or a a software person or, or, or a professional athlete or a student or a child, doesn't matter. Black, white, from this country, from another country, the same, same act, 
The same justification, the same righteousness was applied to your life when Jesus died for you. That's what Peter says. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these are the recipients, people that fit into that category. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is you. Let me show you one other aspect of this before we leave this background, and that is the reason. You've seen the writer and commented on when he wrote and the recipients there in verse 1. But, but, but let me comment on the reason that he is writing. Now, when you look at verse 1, you really don't see a stated reason. But Peter says something here that gives us a hint of what's coming. And it's wrapped up in that word standing. Those, those who have obtained a faith by equal he, he introduces here a, a theme that's going to run through this letter, a, a theme with regard to standing and falling and being steady and steadfast. If you just look over, uh, for example, at verse 10 in this chapter, or look down a little bit, notice what he says. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Do you see it? Peter was familiar with with what it meant to fall. And he knew what it meant. He was familiar with what it meant to be reestablished in his faith. Some of you know the story. I'll just show it to you briefly in Matthew chapter 26. If you wanna hold your place here in 2 Peter 1, flip back there, first book in the New Testament, Matthew, and then chapter 26. When we come to this chapter, we come to the, the, the hours uh, before Jesus would be crucified, the night before he was crucified. He had had the Passover supper with his disciples, which was translated, transformed into what you and I know as the Lord's Supper or, or communion. They had just shared that together. And then they finished it by singing a hymn. Matthew 26, verse 30 says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now look at this conversation. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will, be, I, I, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, this would have been a really good place for Peter to just keep his mouth shut, pull out his iPhone and start making reservations to get to Galilee. But he didn't. He had to speak. Verse 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And what happened? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what he did. He fell big time. Luke gives us a little bit more information about this conversation in Luke chapter 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke, we'll make our way back to 2 Peter, but I want us to have this in hand when we do. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 31, Jesus is speaking and he says, Simon, Simon, we saw Simeon, a form of that in in Peter's introduction in this letter we're studying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that verse is in the Bible? 
Aren't you glad Jesus is praying for you today? You understand this is what Satan is doing. This is what he does with Christians. He can't take our salvation away. The Bible's very clear that he's running back and forth throughout the whole earth, finding ways to accuse us so we can go before God and say, look at Shaddix. You call him one of your preachers, much less one of your children? I mean, look at the corruption of his mind. Look at the way he thinks. Look how he doesn't love his wife like, like Christ loved the church. Look at how selfish he is. And this is what Satan is doing with you, and it's what he's doing with me. But Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, the Bible tells us, interceding for us, praying for us. And his prayers are much more powerful than Satan's accusations. He does it for Peter right here. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But look at this. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. My English text, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is a word I want, I want us to take with us over to 2 Peter. It's a word in the language of the New Testament that means to, to stand or to set fast or to fix firmly. The image I have in my mind is, is pouring concrete. I've done that to, you know, to, for some fence post or a mailbox or building a deck or something. You pour it and it's wet and you need it to you stand so it will be fixed firmly and, 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 and it will set. It will set fast and become hard. And Jesus takes that word and he tells Peter, this is what I want you to do after I pick you back up, after you've fallen. I want you to strengthen your brothers. We'll come back to 2 Peter with me. Let me show you something. Chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are, and look at this, established in the truth that you have. See the word established? Guess what? Same word as strengthen over in Luke 22. Same word. Peter says, you're established. Look at chapter two, verse 14. They, talking about the false teachers, have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They are unsteady souls. They entice unsteady souls. Guess what? The word unsteady, same word in the negative form. Same word as Luke 22. Translated strengthened over there. These are unstrengthened people. Look at chapter three, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You see the word stability? Guess what? Same word, different form. The word for strengthen. Three times in this letter, Peter is gonna say, established, unsteady, stability. This is what he's after. This is the reason that he's writing. We come to 2 Peter, uh, the, this book of 2 Peter, and guess what? We find this brother. We find this brother fulfilling the task that Jesus gave him. Jesus said, after you get picked back up, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And now Peter is here writing, and all the way through it, he's set on one thing, and that is establishing you and me in the faith where we are on solid ground by reminding us of the gospel the reason for the letter. So that's the background. Let's look at the blessing. Again, verse two, common in letters in the first century where a wish would be pronounced, but I want you to look at the distinctly Christian character. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
Peter says, I want two things to be multiplied in you, to keep growing, to abound, grace and peace. Be real easy to just pass over those as just words, rhetoric that he's using that were common in letters. And certainly those words are used in, in other places, but I think there's more here than that. And you say, well, why? Well, because look at the end of the letter in chapter three, in 2 Peter chapter three and verse 14, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Do you see it? Now look at verse 18. But grow in the grace, you see that? Grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Both grace and peace are found not only at the beginning of the letter, they're found at the end of the letter. And when we come to the end of the letter, Peter is using them in, in, in terms that speak of proactivity, of something we do. Peace grows out of the peace we have between us and God and our relationship. And it becomes not a vertical thing, but it flows out horizontally now in how we relate to one another, in our love for one another, our unity, our cooperation, all of those things. Grace, remember from last week, if you were here, is the resource God has given us. This is why Peter says, grow in grace. Keep accessing, keep embracing the grace of God, the resource that you've been given to live the Christian life and be shaped into the image of Christ. And so here in verse 2, Peter starts off with this and says, I'm praying for this to happen, for these things to be multiplied in you. Let me, let me unpack that in two ways. I want you to think about the blessing of knowing Jesus. You want to know how that's multiplied in a believer's life? Well, he tells us. May it be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, this is a word that, that, that we're going to find all the way through Peter. We're going to find words of knowledge and know, and we're not going to chase them all down right now. And let, me, let me just say to you, by, by way of our understanding, that Peter uses two different words in his book for, that are both translated by our English words, know and knowledge. It's important for us to see that. One of those words is a full, intimate knowledge of God, and that's what he's using here. Another word is an experiential knowledge. In other words, a knowledge you gain by experience in the Christian life. Interesting thing is that he uses that first one here, and then at the end of the book, in that last verse, in verse 18 of chapter 3, he uses the other one. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, experiential knowledge. So he bookends the book with this idea, two different kinds of knowledge, and in between what we have is the beck and call on the Christian life to live out his or her faith through the gospel of Christ in the intimate, full knowledge of God, but also in the experiential knowledge of God as we grow and we progress as Christians. We'll call attention to that as we go along, the blessing of knowing Jesus, but also the blessing of being reminded. We started with that when I told you the story of Vince Lombardi. I told you, this is where we're, we, we, the, the, the title of this series, Remember the Gospel, is an implication of, 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 of being reminded about something. We need to remember that. Have you ever thought about the relationship between knowledge and reminding? Why would those two things be here? I told you, this is a reminder Peter is giving you know, to us through here. But he's also talking about knowledge. What is the relationship to those two things? Well, the relationship is that it's possible for us 
for us to push our knowledge into the shadow of our forgetfulness sometimes so that we need to be reminded. You know this is true. I don't have to convince you of this. This is why Peter in verse 12 here in chapter one will say, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. In verse 13, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. In verse 15, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall, to remember these things. Chapter three, verse one, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincerity Sincere mind by way of reminder. Why? That you should remember certain truths. Do you see it? All the way through this letter. Should not be any surprise to us. Your Bible is written that way. It's written with the assumption that God's people needed to be reminded about things he had already told them. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 22 is just a rehashing of, of Exodus chapter 20 when the, in the giving of the law at Sinai. God wanted them to be reminded before they went into the promised land. The book of, of, of first and uh, second Chronicles, just rehashing a lot of the things that are in first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. When we come to the Psalms over and over, chapter after chapter, are rehashing the attributes of the glory of God. The prophets were in sync with their, 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 their teaching on things like judgment and, and, and forgiveness and, and the law. And when we come into the New Testament, we don't have just one gospel. We've got four gospels. And many of you have read them and you know that some of the same stories are in each of those gospels, repeating the teaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the encounters of Jesus. And then we find the apostle Paul speaking in places like Philippians 3, 1 and Romans 15, 15 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, saying to people, it's good for me to remind you. Remember, I told you these things when I was with you over and over again. And then the book of Jude, which is a companion book to the book of 2 Peter, didn't mention that a while ago. We'll refer to Jude often right before the book of Revelation. Only has one chapter. But Jude is talking about the same things Peter is talking about. And in verse 5 of Jude, he says, Now I want to remind you, and listen to this, although you once fully knew it. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. We, we, we know this, don't we? We know that we have a tendency to forget things that we had learned before. Things that we had learned before. Things that we had been taught and so Peter comes right here and he says, I am going to remind you about your knowledge that you have fully known. And this is one of the things here in this book, the background, the blessing. Now let me show you the big idea and we'll be done. Verses three and four, I think, speak of God through Peter reminding Christians that he has given them everything they need. I love the way he starts this book. This is where we jump into the content. And remember, remember, we're going to be talking about the onslaught of false teaching. So he's speaking into that, going against the grain. He comes to this place right here at the beginning. And the first thing he does is he says, God has provided everything you need in order to be established, in order to be firm, in order to be strong in the midst of this false teaching, in order to remember the gospel. So let me unpack it this way. I want to show you the resource God has given us, then the result 
then the route or the roadmap, and then the reward, where it's all headed. The resources mentioned in verse 3, his divine power. I don't have to spend a lot of time with this because we talked so much about grace last week. And I, and I reminded you that grace isn't limited to when you got saved. It is the resource of God, the necessary power for you to live the Christian life and to be moved all the way to looking like Jesus. And that's what he's talking about right here. The word power is the word from which we get our word dynamite. But be careful because dynamite in the Bible is not like the dynamite that you and I think of. We think of dynamite lighting a fuse, big bang, creating chaos, and then the dust settles and we pick up the pieces. Not so much with the dynamite in the language of the New Testament. It probably would be more likened to the gasoline in your car. Nothing flashy about it. You don't even see it. But it provides an ongoing resource to get you where you want to go. And this is what, this is what Peter says right here. His divine power has been put in your life Wish we had time to go to Ephesians 1. I mentioned it last week there. Paul actually uses this word power and he says the power that's been given to you is the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. This is no small thing. You think you can't stand strong against temptation, against the onslaught of the, the, the cultural teaching and the cultural norms and it pulling you in. Listen to this. You have been given as a believer in Jesus Christ his divine power. Same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. So there's the resource. What's the result? Where is this headed, this gift of his power? Look at it. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's speaking of true life here. He's speaking of, of life the way it's intended to be, eternal life. That's not just reserved for out there when we die, but right now, if you have Christ, you have eternal life. He says true life and godliness. This is the practical conduct he's talking about, living out the character of God. This is the result of having the divine power in your life. This is what God wants to do with it. So he's not giving you his divine power so you can go ahead, go around and wield it and, 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 and zap people. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what things you, you dream about, but you know, I, I, I actually think when I retire, I'm, I don't ever see myself retiring, but if I ever retired, and I wanted to find a job. I, I, I think I want to be a law enforcement agent that goes around to the grocery stores and gives tickets to people that park in the fire lane or in the handicapped spots. I mean, it just crawls all over me. Don't do that, people. All right? Don't do that. And don't use your mom's handicap sticker to get you a free parking spot. Don't do that. See, that's part of my flesh. I, I want to go around and, you know, do justice. That, that's not why he gave you his divine power. He gave you his divine power. He gave me his divine power so that it would lead us to the result of experiencing true life and experiencing the manifestation of his character in our conduct. That's the result. How do we get there? Well, he tells us. Through the knowledge of him, same word, by the way, that's up there in verse two, full, comprehensive, intimate knowledge 
of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You want to know how to see the power of God move you along to experiencing what life is intended to be and godly character? It comes in your knowledge of him. It comes in your intimate relationship with him. It comes in the fullness of, of your interaction and awareness of his presence in your life. That's how he moves us along the way. And he called us to this. Look at it, by his own glory and excellence. One that called us to this and puts us on this path is one who is not only one who manifests divine glory, but one who is excellent, is good in his own nature. He's the one that calls us to this. What's the reward? Well, look at verse four. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. You know what you get? You know what you get when you get saved? You get, watch this, come in here real close. You get promises of God that are sufficient, that are sufficient not only to make you strong and stable and steadfast in this life and give you resistance, but to carry you all the way through to the intended goal. Say promises like what? Well, promises that he's made you righteous, promises of his grace and his power, promises that, that one day he's coming back to get us and all of this is gonna be over. And on and on we could go precious and very great promises. Look, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wish we had time to chase this down, but let me just big picture give this to you. This is, this is what the Bible is about. This is what the Christian life is about. This is what eternity is about. Paul gave us a glimpse of it, an overview in, in, in Romans chapter eight and verses 29 and 30. He said, when he says, he uh, whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what God did in eternity past. He set his delight on some and he marked them out for this purpose that they would look like Jesus, their brother in all of eternity. And so you step onto the pages of the Bible and the first page of the Bible, God creates heaven and earth and he creates mankind, how? In his image. And then sin messes all that up, perverts it, distorts it. But you come all the way over to the end of the Bible in the last chapters of Revelation and what do you find? God recreates heaven and earth and he recreates mankind in his image. John said it this way, beloved, we are children of God right now. But it hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be. But when he is revealed, when Jesus comes, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that divine nature will be completely restored. It's being built in you right now, little by little, from one degree of glory to another, Paul says. But one day, one day we will be full partakers of the image of God. Doesn't mean you become a God or I become a God. It means you get to experience the fullness of his nature. You see it? That's where this is had, partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Aren't you tired of this struggle? I am. Paul was frustrated with it in Romans 7. He said, the things I want to do, I, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Our flesh keeps pulling against our spirit day by day. Scripture calling us to let the, let the spirit take over, to yield to the spirit, to walk in the spirit. Flesh keeps pulling against that. 
And that will be characteristic of our lives and from now until the time when Jesus comes. But when Jesus comes, all that will be over. Peter says it here at that point. We're partakers of the denying nature. We will be in a position of having escaped from the corruption that is in the law, this world because of sinful desire. It won't be pulling at us anymore. And there won't, be any, there won't be any crying. There won't be any pain. There won't be any tears. There won't be any death. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. That is the reward that awaits us as believers in Jesus Christ. I like to build things. I'm not a master craftsman, but like putting things together. So from time to time, I order things off Amazon. And when they come, first thing I do is open the instructions, really try to push against my manly desire not to read the instructions. But I read them and sometimes they say, tools needed for assembly at the top of the page. And they'll show a picture of a hammer, a level, a tape measure or something. And I, I need to go to my workshop and get those things and bring them in order to put it together. But sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised when I open something and I unfold the instructions and at the top it says everything needed for assembly is included and there might be a picture of an allen wrench or you know a, 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 a template of some type that's included and I don't have to go get any tools it's all there when Peter writes this words he records the words of God to you brother and sister and that is in this gospel in this gospel that has been given to you, in this life that has been given to you, everything you need to live it out has been provided. And so we find great encouragement in our pursuit of the Christian life and the glory of God as we live out the gospel together. If you're a Christian, I want you to be encouraged in that today. I want you to resolve afresh to live this gospel out. I want you to renew your commitment along with me to say we will be a people who stand against false teaching and we will be a people that are reminding one another constantly through great songs like your teams pick out for you gospel songs that have, have the gospel in them. We remind one another about the gospel through song. When your pastor stands here to preach and he keeps coming back to the gospel to rejoice and being reminded about the gospel, knowing that this is what establishes us and keeps our feet on firm ground. If you're here without Christ today, we plead with you. Let this be your spiritual birthday. This gospel is for you. This good news is for you. Jesus came and lived this perfect life because you can't do it. And he took that life and your sin to the cross and he died there for you in your place. But he rose again and stands ready today to put the life of God back inside of you. If you will simply repent of your sins and place your faith in him. I, I encourage you to do that at your seat. Maybe some of you have sensed that's what God is doing, even as I've preached today. But after we sing or after I pray in a moment and we sing, there'll be some pastors down here. And I would encourage you, tell somebody that today you're trusting Christ. Leave your seat, come down here and tell one of these brothers, I, I want that gospel, that good news. I wanna be a follower of Christ. If you have questions, ask them. They're here to answer those questions. They're available to you, but don't let anything keep you from trusting Christ today as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing grace. 
We pray for that grace right now that we would embrace it. We pray your spirit would move in our midst. Establish us as your children, God, in our faith. I pray you would. Lord, I pray for those that don't know Christ today. In this moment, I pray you would give courage and boldness to do something that maybe they're afraid to do, hesitant to do. You draw them to yourself. And I pray you would illuminate minds and stir hearts and change wills. And we'll give you the glory for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.